This week on Kettlefish, it's our 100th episode with Curtis Armstrong from Revenge of the Nerds! Woo! Welcome to our after show. We call Kettle a Fish. The No Politics Laughter Show. It's time for Kettle a Fish. No debates, hate, or arguments allowed on Kettle a Fish. It's like a Willy Wonka psychedelic acid trip. So hooray for Kettle a Fish. Alrighty, everybody, welcome to Kettle of Fish, the show where we chat with actors, comedians, artists, scientists, musicians, magicians, models, and now even astronauts about life, love, and the creative process. I am your seafaring podcasting captain of the internet airwaves, Nick the Saucy One Catsaurus, and I am broadcasting to you as always from the top of Meth Mountain, Tennessee. And I also want to introduce my nose-picking, beer-swilling, belching producer, the Lane Meyer to my Charles DeMar, the fabulous D. <laughs> That's cute. But just a uh, point of fact, I do not pick my nose where anybody can see me. Just saying. <laughs> There's lots of things I say in these intros that you don't I do, know. but they're tongue-in-cheek. I, think, the, I think our audience of any audience is smart enough to get that. I, I would certainly hope so by now. Like after So we don't need to do a press release to TMZ. Yes. You're not actually a chronic nose picker. No, that's true. Uh, and just because we broadcast from Meth Mountain doesn't mean that we do meth, because we definitely don't do that. Although there is a lot of meth on this mountain. They, that is not untrue. Like, guys, If Better Off seriously. Dead was filmed here, it would be like, do you know what the street value of meth is of this mountain? <laughs> it would be, like, it would be well, a totally different movie. It would be. It'd be like, well, you know, the church back there, the shed behind it blew up two years ago because of meth. And then there was the place across the street from us a few years ago that there were fire trucks and everything else. And we're like, what's going on? Oh, somebody's uh, garage magically blew up. We don't know why. And we're like, oh, fuck. You know, it's um, <laughs> bad when your favorite restaurant closes down because the kids that work there were cooking meth and like back behind a dumpster. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they had really good cake, too. Just saying. (laughs) So, this is where we are now. All right, um, I want to touch on something real quick, because this is our first time back this year with Kettle of Fish. This is our 100th episode. Can you fucking believe it? We made it here. 100 episodes. Awesome. Very special episode today. I want to tell you my new New Year's resolution, because I came to a realization last week. That I am the human equivalent of LSD. I am intense. I am always putting insane thoughts in people's head. And that shit was cute when we were in our 20s. But now in our 40s, it's a little bit daunting. You know, I know 45-year-old soccer mom is going to be like, yeah, I enjoy your rant. That's the equivalent of a 20-hour acid trip. You know, they have Adderall for that. <laughs> so my, my my shit isn't cute anymore. So my New Year's res my new New Year's resolution, I think I can make one twenty days in, is to be more like weed. I want to be more like marijuana. Mm-hmm. I want to be mellower. Everybody loves weed. Yes. Middle aged people love weed. I'm going to be more like marijuana going forward. Get off the political rants. Take <laughs> down the blood pressure. And just, you know, happy little bushes. That's where I'm headed. (laughs) I love it. Sound good? All right, let's get Fern in here. And a girl who has been lost in the wilderness of life, but is back after a six-month hiatus. I'm trying to sound sultry. Our (laughs) co-host, we've missed so much. Fern Hart. Fern Hart, back at the 100th episode. Let me tell you, you picked an insane time to come back. 
back at the 100th episode. Really glad to be back. It's been a little bit of a hard road the last few months. Um, and some things have changed, but some things have stayed the same. I am uh, very appropriately broadcasting from my mom's basement because I'm a huge nerd. And uh, in the middle of a snowstorm in Maine. So that that is a little different than sunny Virginia Beach, which is where I normally am. But what stayed the same is, as always, um, I will be joining you with my favorite beverage. And today that is Michelob Ultra. So I always have my favorite beverage. Hey, I try we're to let you guys know, today. and that's what it is. Really? Yeah. Uh, you watching you those carbs again? Always. I've taken a no sugar so far this year. I'm proud of myself because I usually cheat by Good now. job. So I'm very Good proud job. of myself. By the way, um, we had done a lot of condolences. I know when I went and filmed with William over the summer, we did condolences there. I'm, so I'm sure this isn't anything that's not public. You've been gone because your father was battling cancer, and unfortunately, he has passed away. Yeah, I don't want to bring the tone it, of the it, show down, but the listeners will probably want to know why if they don't already. No, but you know what? I think it's really important to talk about. Um, it has been very difficult. Um, it, it came on very, very quickly at the end of August, and I, uh, I pretty much have been with them, uh, with the exception of a few weeks over Thanksgiving. And we've been, you know, fighting, sleeping on couches and eating takeout, which I'm very proud of myself. I'm actually five pounds lighter than I was when I left. Um, but it came on very quick, and even if he had gone to the doctor when he got the symptoms, um, I don't think the end result would have been any different, unfortunately. It was a very quick-moving stomach cancer, but the one good thing that is, well, many, many good things have come out of it, and in a situation like this, you have to try to pull good. Um, you know, my family stayed together as a unit and stayed tight and showed our love and support. Uh, we fought as hard as we could. He fought as hard as he could. And I have learned over this process that these small things are just that. They're very small, and you need to ask yourself, will this matter a year from now? Because the big stuff really makes you realize and get in check how small the small things are. So for that... Um, the quote of Fernism, perception is key. Yeah. As That's it. You know, I mean, it, it's a bad situation all around. I love my father. He's my superhero. You know, it's, it's, I was closer to him than just about anyone in my entire life. Um, but it is what it is. And I have to take good out of it because I know he would want me to do that and move forward and continue to be kind and accommodating and love people. And, um, you know, he really taught me a lot in my life. So I, I take all of that. I hang on to it and I move forward and try to do the best that I can to make him proud. Oh, I believe you are. And me, D, and I'm sure the fans love you, and we're glad to have you back. And I just wanted to say that on air, as this is your first day back since July. Well, thank you. I'm actually really, really, like, stoked to be here. By the way, you coming back for the 100th episode is like a reveal on a soap opera during Sweeps Weeks. So it's, like, really yes. dramatic that you're back at, epi like, episode 100, The Return of Fern Hart. <laughs> yes, and you know we're both drinking Mick Ultra, so maybe Michelob will be like, "Hey, let's go ahead and do something with this." That would be yes, a hundred episodes in, that never happened. I'm sure it'll happen today. All right, D, 
Why don't you give us a rundown of what's coming up? And we've got a new podcast um, added to our family, too. We absolutely do. So coming up this month on Musical Osmosis, we've got Crow Jane of Egrets for on Ergo, which is the hardest band name I think I've ever tried to say. Say that um, five times real fast. It's like no. a freaking tongue twister. Um, and she's also from Prissy Whip. Um, and we're going to have Kim Coletta of Jawbox is going to be joining us to update us. Jawbox is having a reunion, and we're going to know all about it. It's going to be great. After like 20 years years man the kids are flipping out that all boxes yes uh and next month on musical osmosis Lori fairbanks of cunt punch which is my favorite name band name to say ever and also ghoul towns lead singer lyle is going to be joining us uh kettle of fish we've got the author and also an engineer author of heart in gear uh christopher hoffman is going to be joining us and also the creator of the new bullwinkle series coming up on amazon brad norman's going to be coming to join us and we're also going to have a bonus episode with lloyd kaufman who you may know from trauma films he's one of those guys with one of those faces like i had no i was like who and then it was like oh oh i know that guy i know that guy from like a hundred things yeah we love those guys um and of course we're gonna have tons and tons of sporadic tin candid episodes here there and just about everywhere and you can check all of those things out on www.tincan.media, as well as some of them on iTunes and castbox.fm. And coming very, very soon, our newest edition will be uh, a podcast hosted by Kat Alvarado, who you probably know because she's made you laugh because she's freaking hilarious. Um, but she's going to have one called Bad Hombres, History's Villains. And I cannot wait to hear some of that. And I really hope she's, I'm sure we're going to hear something about like Bonnie and Clyde and, you know, Vladimir Dracul and like all of those historical bad guys. Cannot wait. It's going to be super, super. Cool. And also we have all our normal programming, the Padula show, Life is Hard, Mama of Creepy, Uncustomary. Just go to tincan.media and you can check out your favorite podcast. Tons and tons of stuff. We're always there. All right, well, let's get our 100th guest in here. I was so excited, and I'm such a fanboy. I actually wrote a little intro this week, which I never do, but I felt it was apropos for the 100th episode. So about three or four times a year, we have a guest on who is truly iconic, someone who occupies a special place in our hearts because their work has been the backdrop to many of our lives. Today's guest's performance in Better Off Dead made me not just feel okay with being a weirdo, but made me celebrate it and discover being a weirdo kicks ass um, many of you know today's guests from our youth as booger in revenge of the nerds and as a middle-aged man flopped down on the couch as snot from american dad he was miles in risky business when we hit, when i hit puberty popped up on murphy's murphy brown lois and clark and suddenly susan all through my party in 20s and was the voice of scooter on eat the cat as i went into true adulthood but most importantly he was the producer and host of King of the Nerds as I started my podcast career. And without that show, by the way, I would we would never, me and Dee, we would never be friends with Rachel or Xander or Bonnie or any of those kids, right? Yeah, yeah. And Mary Kate. Um, and it's so fun because I get to say I officially know someone who works at NASA, which of course is Mary Kate. And she's a freaking brilliant bombshell. And Rachel is just the most fun person ever and taught us how to cosplay properly so how cool was that like, indeed really. okay so 
But no further ado, greetings and thank you to a true pop culture hero, Curtis Armstrong is with us. Curtis, how you doing? I'm doing great. Nice to be here. Right on. It's so nice to have um, have you on, and I want to thank you for joining us for our fabulous 100th episode. Yeah, congratulations, you guys. That's fab- That's fantastic. Thank yeah, you. it's kind of crazy. Um, Dee pulled stats not too long ago, and I think the average run of a podcast is like seven episodes. Yeah. They yeah, usually crash and burn. Yeah, I only did one, uh, which was connected with, with King of the Nerds, actually. Genevieve Pearson and I did one while we were on hiatus uh, called In the Company of Nerds. Wow. And uh, it was actually sort of directly associated with the uh, the production company that was doing the show. And it was some of the most fun I've ever had, but it lasted, I think, 15 episodes, and that was it. Yeah. They're really hard to sustain. Let me tell you, it's a grind. I work a day job, too. Um, Fern has many responsibilities. Dee has many responsibilities in a day job, and there is a lot to, like, you've got to have love and dedication, like anything in nerd culture, I think. Yeah, that's true. That's you know? true. Yeah. All right. Well, before we um, dive into your amazing career that spans over 40 years, I always promised myself, and I've been kind of going different avenues to try to get you on the show for a while now, and I always promised myself if I got you on the show, I've got to clarify two more rumors, rumors that I heard about you growing up and okay. see what your thoughts are on them. So here's the first okay. one. Growing up in Pittsburgh, Revenge of the Nerds came out right around the same time that Beastie Boys broke big. They had a video called Fight for Your Right to Party. It's a video where these three nerds, parents go away and they're like, let's throw a party. I hope no bad people show up. And then the Beastie Boys come breaking through the door. The Beastie Boy, whose rap name was MCA, he kind of had curly, scruffy hair, five o'clock shadow. He was wearing a leather jacket. And the conspiracy back then goes, and there was no internet, of course, that you were actually in the Beastie Boys, and the network had made you up to look a little bit different. But that whole video was a tribute to Revenge of the Nerds and kind of a nod secret. Like, you were like America's first crisis actor, that it was secretly a nod that that was you. And, I, of course, we know it's not true, but I wanted to know, was that a regional thing, or have you ever heard that rumor before that you were the guy from the Beastie Boys? I have never heard that rumor before. I, I have no idea. I mean, I, I've, I've heard people say that I resembled him. Uh, at, at, you know, there were, you know, people would post certain pictures that, you know, were blurry enough that we looked similar. But I've never heard that there was a whole conspiracy theory about it. Maybe that, it was just growing uh, up in Or Pittsburgh. urban legend is probably a better way of putting it. That is a better way of that's putting awesome. it. I, I think you nailed that. Yeah, urban legend. And that's when we, I was growing up, they're like, it's him. And we would play the, I, you know, I taped this stuff on VHS and play it back. That is not Booger. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Look at him there. This whole thing's set up. It's a nod. All right, <laughs> let's move funny. on to the next rumor. This one's less verifi- verifiable. And I actually went online to try to find information about it. Journey has a song called Don't Stop Believin'. There's a line in it that says, just a city boy born and raised in South Detroit. And the rumor that I heard is Joe Perry wrote that about you. Joe Perry wrote that about me? Yes. Wow. Uh, Also one I've never heard. Um, I can't imagine, I I don't know Joe Perry. I, I can't 
imagine why that would be true. Is he from, maybe it's about him. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, know where he's from. But uh, no, uh, I, I would say almost certainly not. Well, I went on all the message boards, and I Googled it and tried to find something, and all I found was a big freaking argument if there's actually a South Detroit or if it's downtown Detroit, and everybody was screaming at each other, so that was nice. But I couldn't yeah, find any it's, Well, that's an, actually, that's, a, that's kind of a good point. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of, yeah, there's a, 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 a I mean, it, it gets into, you know, nitpicking about what you call various areas of Detroit, but... No, I, 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 I don't. I don't think that that had. I, I, I don't. I, I don't. I don't imagine that Joe Perry knows I exist. So <laughs> I, I, I would say probably not. All right. Well, I mean, that's a beloved song. Our kids played in band. Fern, I'm sure. I know you're a big. Oh yeah. I mean, well. I know the song. I just never knew that was the lyric, and I would certainly never have known that people thought maybe he'd written it about me. Fair enough. All right, let's dive into your career here. The big four films you're known for, the big four projects, I should say, you're known for in the 80s. Moonlighting, Revenge of the Nerds, Better Off Dead, and Risky Business. Yeah. My favorite of all those is Better Off Dead, and also one of my favorite movies. I've got some DVDs and oh, yeah. VHS, like um, River's Edge is one of them, Fast Times at Richmond High, Teachers. There's a whole slew of them that, I, yeah. that are in rotation. Once a year I play them, I try to play them for the kids. And I got to tell you, man, of all those movies, even more so than Risky Business, even more so than Revenge of the Nerds, I think Better Off Dead holds up the best. It is still insanely funny. Well, I think it's um, that's. I think that's the way a lot of people feel about it because, you know, I only have my own uh, opinion about these things because I, I, I don't. I, I never really think about them in the kind of personal way necessarily that fans of the movies do. Uh, when I'm doing them, I'm either having fun or I'm not having fun. And it, you know, the, the end result I either like, or I don't like it. It's, it's all basically a job and what happens as a result of it, because I started in theater, which was very much, I mean, that was ephemeral. You know, you went in and you did the play, and when the play ended, however ran it long, however long it ran, um, it was over. And it would then when I started doing films, um, it happened that they started happening at the same time that these new, you know, methods of prolonging a film's life started popping up right so that you know cable television and vhs and uh you know uh, those kinds of things were starting to happen at the same time and not so much risky business which i've always sort of considered more of an art film than anything but revenge of the nerds and better off dead and one crazy summer those kinds of movies and and the other ones that you were mentioning those all were directed to, you know, sort of the same uh, audience. And it was that audience that was, you know, staying up all night watching uh, uh, cable, cable TV and, and, you know, running videotapes till they fell apart. I was and, one of those people. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I sort of was, although because I'm older, my interest 
in that kind of stuff tended more to much older movies because those were the ones that I grew up with. Right. So, you know, those sorts of movies didn't mean anything to me. Uh, you know, the, the thing to remember is, like in Revenge of the Nerds is a good example, uh, that the nerds in that movie were all way too old to be playing those parts. You know, they wouldn't be playing, they wouldn't cast a movie like Revenge of the Nerds now with 30-year-old men. But that's how old Carradine and I were. And some of the others were not much younger than that. So our frame of reference tended to be different than our fans' frame of, it, of reference. Interesting. So there was kind of a disconnect. And uh, so that when I encounter people now, you know, who grew up watching these movies, and they talk about 80s being the golden age of movies, you know, my response is, well, it was the golden age of movies for me because that's when I started working in them. But it's not necessarily because I have any emotional connection to those movies. Right. Now, having said that, Better Off Dead has held up unbelievably well. And it's definitely become more popular almost every year. I, you know, see, and I think that there are things about uh, Better Off Dead that it's, it's relatively pure in a way. It's just pure surrealist teenage comedy. And it, nothing gets in your way of enjoyment, which frankly isn't the same as Revenge of the Nerds. As popular as Revenge of the Nerds is, there are elements of it that don't quite line up the way we wish they did. Right, uh, right, I get you. And, and, you know, there are issues with misogyny and with race in, in, uh, in that movie which don't come up in the same way with Savage Steve Holland's movies. They were, they were on a different level. They were going for a different level. The movie was not that popular when it opened, and... Uh, and his second was even less so. Uh, and yet, over the years, you know, now it's become like a Christmas movie. People watch it every every Christmas because there's a part of it that takes place at Christmas. I mean, it's it's quite amazing how popular it's become. I mean, it's very ingrained in the culture, and I'll give you an example. I put a meme up. Somebody made a meme of the $2 kids on Price yeah. is Right. And the little thing where you bid how much the refrigerator's worth, it says $2. And I put that up without even saying better off dead. And everybody immediately on Facebook, everybody immediately knew what it oh, was. Yeah. And then here comes all the quotes like, oh, it's a shame when you throw away a perfectly good white boy like that. Yeah. And a street value this mountain. I can't imagine that happening with a Revenge of the Nerd meme, right, Fern? Which one did you tend to like better? Because I'm, like I said, I'm a big better off dead fan. Fern. I mean, Better Off Dead is my movie. Better Off Dead is in my top five of all time. Um, I own it at home. It is a movie that I quote very, very frequently. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, <laughs> I, I always uh, quote the street value of the mountain um, all the time because I found that just one of the funniest scenes out of that movie, that and um, 
the racing where uh, they're racing, and he says, "Well, they learned how to speak English by listening to sports radio." You know, um, but that that movie is is amazing to me. It always was, and I think the cult culture behind some of these movies, like Revenge of the Nerds, like Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer, um, all of those tend to lend to such a vast. Uh, a majority of people because if you're not actually in that age zone you're at least looking at the movie and saying man I remember what it was like to be a teenager and people can really relate to those movies and I think that's where that cult following really kind of sets in um, Risky Business is kind of I kind of had the Mandela effect with that because I swore I saw that movie I sat down and watched it with my mom the other night I said well, I'm going to introduce you to Risky Business and watching this movie and realizing um the difference in the artistic, uh, just the artistic visual, ju just everything. It was just yeah. so artistic. And I was like, I realized I've never seen this movie. I've seen Tom Cruise go across the floor in his socks and, you know, sing old time rock and roll. But it was a Mandela effect. I'd seen it so many times that I just realized two nights ago I had never seen this movie. And it well, was so it different than some of this cult stuff. But yeah, it was very it, cool. It, it was very, very much. I mean, I interviewed Paul Brickman, the writer director, for my book, and one of the things that he told me was that Risky Business, when he was writing the script, which was seven years previous to when we finally started filming it, um, that he wanted a comedy that he wanted that, that would be his idea of like a date night comedy somebody some a, a movie that he would be able to go out with his girlfriend and see and that was his idea of what that was and uh the elegance of the of the visuals and the cleverness of the script and uh, and the performances of everybody in that movie um it just puts it at, for me, a, a different level. I think that that while you could introduce, maybe, you could introduce something like uh, Revenge of the Nerds or Better Off Dead very easily to young people now, despite the, the sex, I think, you know, Risky Business would be a harder sell because right. of the rhythm of it, the slowness, the, you know the length of the scenes, that kind of Plus stuff. Plus it's a it's little not, dark. It's extremely dark. I mean, that's right. part of, mm -hmm. that, that was the other part of it, that from Brickman's point of view, this was a, was a reaction to Reagan and to, to uh, capitalism and the Reagan youth. I mean, that group, that group of Tom and Bronson and, you know, all, the, the future, whatever they call it, the future... Enterprisers or something. I can't Entrepreneurs or yeah. yeah, you know that that whole idea, which was this this sort of white privilege thing, which is of course still an issue. Um, that was that was his reaction, uh, Paul Britton's reaction to Reagan, and uh, you know, so it, it was on on a lot of levels, just a different type of film and fell through the cracks a little bit because young people would show up, but it was mainly for, you know, to see Rebecca and Tom 
uh, having sex more than it was um, the overall message. And that was a little uncomfortable watching it with my mom, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, not I can, totally, I because we that. have no secrets, but she thoroughly enjoyed it. But the thing about this movie is that it does show, you know, other than the artistic value, um, if you really look deep and dark, it does show how things can go sideways so quick, um, well, <laughs> which, it was, is, which is, really it, struck me. Yeah, it's a, it's a message that caused a lot of problem in the making of the movie, because... <laughs> It was originally shot with a different ending, uh, which was much darker than the ending that, that you're familiar with. And David Geffen, who was the, the, uh, the guy whose company was releasing this movie, uh, pushed back uh, about the ending and said, you can't do this. It's not... I guess his words, as I remember one of the other producers telling me was, I remember the quote, it's so odd, but uh, when we found out that the movie was being delayed and delayed and delayed, the reason was because David Geffen said to Paul Brickman, kids are not going to come and see this movie six times to see Tom Cruise fail. And that, of course, Tom Cruise failing was the point from Paul Brickman's standpoint, huh. because he's gotten involved in, in corrupt, corrupt, venal, uh, horrible business, and he has to pay the price. There has to be some kind of, of, of price paid for this. And that was Paul Brickman's opinion. It's right there and in the name. I never even noticed that before. It's in the name of the movie. Yeah, kind of. Risky but business. It, yeah. yeah it, well, yeah, but it can go one way or another. It can go, you know, that he gets into college and he gets the girl and everything is fine. Or you can see the effect that, that uh, uh, associating with corrupt individuals affects you. And that was the way that Paul Brickman wanted to show it. Geffen ultimately gave him a gave him a, a line and said if you don't reshoot the ending the movie will never come out so he reshot yeah, and, the know, ending with you know tom and rebecca sort of having ice cream and saying where do you think we'll be 10 years from now all of that stuff that was not part of the movie that's got to be part of the struggle between an artist and a a, a studio is finding the balance between getting your message across and what the feeling people are going to have when they leave the theater. I mean, it, it's a hard sell, I'm sure, for a studio to have people leaving, you know, sad um, when they want to sell a movie and have it go crazy big. But when you look at it as an actor and you get a script, do you, do you recognize, do you look at it and say, okay, this could be like a cult movie like Better Off Dead or this is so artistic that I really want to be involved in this project. Like, did you have that realization when you looked at the difference between the risky business script and the uh, better off dead script and the revenge of the nerds script? Or did that just kind of that cult mentality just kind of happen around? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, there are a couple of things that you're talking about. One is, you know, as an, as a young actor and you're starting out, you don't look at it, especially in 1982, 
you weren't looking at it from the standpoint of, you know, does this have cult potential? Because that didn't exist. You know, there was no there was no way to build a cult around movies except in a very small way. You know, uh, there were movies, if you had an art cinema in your neighborhood and they would show things at the cinema, then you would get a chance to see them. But until until the ability to see movies came to cable television and became accessible, people didn't have the ability. We didn't think of them in those terms except, you know, like 1950s horror movies or, you know, trauma pictures later on or those kinds of things. Those were Those were cult movies. Uh, you know, sci-fi, stuff like that. But when we were making those movies, something like, well, to start with Risky Business, I read the script and all I could think of, it was, uh, but it was my first movie. I don't have anything to judge it by. I don't know what's going to happen between the, the script and the screen. I don't have any idea. So I was looking at it thinking, what a great script. And, of course, ultimately it was not the script that we, we filmed exactly, but I thought I would love to do this because it's a part and, you know, blah, blah, blah. That was it. And then Revenge of the Nerds script came, and I didn't want to have anything to do with it and uh, was really resistant and had to be talked into doing it. And although I didn't know it, pretty much everybody else connected with the movie felt the same way. Everyone hated it, and we didn't want to do it. And then by the time we were done and saw you know, the, first, the first cut of the movie, we went, oh, you know, they, they actually made something pretty decent out of this. Especially that last got, scene in the movie is incredible. The last We Are the Champions scene yeah, is amazing. Yeah. No, and it, that does it, still hold up today, that scene. It does still hold up. And, you know, you want to be able to, you know, one of the mistakes a lot of these sorts of movies have made since is saying, well, you know, the key is to be really gross and then um, have a lot of heart. That, that seems to be what people shoot for. But it isn't easy, as easy as that. And sometimes you have to find what the correct dosage is, you know, with gross movie stuff and, and sentiment. And, and for the most part, I think Revenge of the Nerds kind of got it right. Um, but uh, then when I, got, um, when I got the Better Off Dead script, which was an offer, Savage, I didn't have to read for that. And... Uh, Savage sent the script to me. I was doing Clan of the Cave Bear, uh, one of the more obscure <laughs> movies I was right, doing in yeah. the 80s. Nice use and, Yeah, and um, I got the script in Canada, and I read it and was laughing out loud, which I didn't even do on Revenge of the Nerds. I just thought it was completely delightful. And I called my agent, and I said, I want to do this movie. And she said, well, you know, it's kind of weird, and there's not a lot of money, and the credit isn't so great. I said, well, get the best you can. I don't care. I still want to do this movie, no matter what. And so I did the movie. 
But I, I mean, the instant, instant delight that I had reading that script, it was just, it spoke to me. Well, Charles DeMar is more relatable, at least to me, than Booger. I didn't want to be Booger when I was a kid, picking my nose and like just being crass and stuff like that. I wanted to be Charles DeMar. When I saw that movie, I was like, how do I get a top hat? I mean, this is before the internet. I was like, oh, my God, I need to walk around with a top hat. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the thing about it is we realized that the script, how, you know, even though I reacted to it the way I did, um, it wasn't until really much later that, that any of us realized how much was added on the set to that script. And it, it, it happened in a weird way. A couple of years ago, we had a uh, few years ago, I don't remember, it was like maybe the 30th, 30th anniversary of it or something. One of, okay. the, one of the anniversaries. And um, San Francisco Sketchfest invited the whole uh, cast and Savage to come up as part of Sketchfest at the Castro Theater and do a um, reading of the script of Better Off Dead. And of course, John didn't come, and you know, so on. But we all, you know, some of us went up. Some of us, a couple of our our uh, cast had passed away, but you know, a lot of people went up. And we did it, and we're sitting on the stage at the at the Castro Theater, and Savage is just is sitting next to me, and he was just going, "Oh my God, I can't believe it!" It, it I mean, he was just in agony because. A lot of the things that people remember, like you know, I can't believe the, you know, the, what what the, do you have any idea what the 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 uh, street value of this mountain is, and all of this different stuff that we improvised or Savage had said, hey, try this. None of it is in the script, and so people who were at the Castro Theater were waiting for their favorite parts, and their favorite parts weren't there. Oh wow! Really? But we had we had completely forgotten because it had been so long how much stuff that script was sort of a work in progress. That is insane. I can't like I'm glad I got that story. You know, one thing I do want to touch on, and I know you touched on it in your book too, and you've been asked it a million times. Are are we ever going to find out what John Cusack's issue was with Better Off Dead? I mean, he was on a uh, nervous he, interview, and he yeah, wouldn't even I, talk about it. I know it's a, it's um I think it was something that it doesn't you know he I hadn't seen him in ages and ages and he texted me at one point and said you know basically uh I was 19 and I wanted to do different stuff and I hated the music and he he had reasons for not liking it when he was that age and you know, if you if you hear him talk about it now, uh, chances are he'll say he doesn't have any problem with it. Uh, by the same token, he was 19. He's done a lot of stuff since, and he doesn't look back on it the same way that that uh, you know Savage or me or you know Bobcat or Joel Murray would right. the other movie you know any of the, any of the the rest of us Diane Franklin or Amanda Wiss you know we all tend to look back on it in a very different way but for him it's history 
and it's it, you know it's like it's like Anthony Edwards for for Revenge of the Nerds. People have connections to their past work that are always different, and you can't really criticize them for it. It's just the way it is. Um, so the answer would be um, I shouldn't answer for John Cusack, but I have a feeling he's less hostile to it than he used to be. Well, that's good to know. Um, I got to get to a fan question, and I think we've actually got a nice little workout for this. Kevin Jones had asked, what exactly was the street value of that mountain in 1985? Uh, Yes, Uh, another question I've been asked uh, almost daily um, in the (laughs) last 30 years. I have no idea. Uh, well, I we got I you covered here, um, mm-hmm. Curtis, because D actually crunched the numbers because we knew this was a question you got asked a lot, and she is actually going to tell the listeners now what the street value of that mountain was. Hit it, yes. D. So, okay. So you have to give me a lot of slack here because it's absolutely impossible to actually know this, um, and there's like a million different facts and figures, but... If we use Snowbird, Utah, where the skiing bits were filmed, um, their average snowfall per year is 500 inches. And they have 2,500 acres of skiable area. Uh, One cubic inch of snow averages about 1.25 pounds. I'm sure it's probably a little bit more um, because it is packed down snow to ski on. But regardless, uh, that gives us about 625 pounds of snow per year or uh, 283,000 grams per inch or so, which equates to this giant number that won't even fit in your calculator. It's like 4.44 blah, 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 E plus 15 grams in grams. So uh, going by the average street price of one gram of cocaine being worth $80, the mountain would be worth a giant number with a lot of zeros or 3.5 septillion dollars, give or take. There you go, Curtis. There's your answer. (laughs) Okay. Three and a half septillion dollars. Okay, that is impressive. Thank you. <laughs> I'm very impressed that you she came up with that. She used her nerd skills. I did. <laughs> Except here's the question, though. Okay. That would be if we were talking about cocaine. Ah. But that was my point. That was my point. It's what, no what worth it? as much he as cocaine. The point of Charles DeMar was, <laughs> as he says in the movie, um, this is, you know, Greendale or whatever it was called is a is a bodaciously small town. I can't even get d- real drugs here. Mm-hmm. He just snorts stuff like jello or snow because he has nothing else. <laughs> um, so in theory, although that's an impressive uh, uh, thing that you put together there, um, uh, he wasn't really talking about cocaine. Right. He was talking about snow. Now, how much snow would be worth? Um, actual snow? Uh, probably nowhere near as much. Right. But it's a, it's a <laughs> hell of an impressive accomplishment. Well, well you have to go I where they don't sell this. snow, like Phoenix, Arizona or something. Right. I was going to say, I'm, I'm willing to give a lot of it away up here because we've got plenty up here and it's still coming down. So if anybody wants some, i got plenty to spare. Yeah, yeah. And it's it probably would market. be a lot more comfortable to snort actual snow than like, I don't know, when we were in middle school, we dared each other to snort pixie sticks and that hurts. So just, Ooh. <laughs> it yeah. does, it burns. 
Yeah. Well, actually, something funny now that you remind me. When I was doing Revenge of the Nerds, no, when I was doing Better Off Dead, uh, and we were at Snowbird, and we had some guys on the film who were stunt, stunt guys, the ones who did the, um, you know, jumps and, and, and uh, uh, stunt skiers. Um, and uh, we were in the lodge at the hotel, and there had been a blizzard, and everybody was trapped in this place, and we couldn't get out, and we couldn't, we couldn't film or anything. And uh, I was sitting up in my room watching uh, TV, and there was a documentary on, and I can't imagine, I can't imagine why it was interesting, but um, it was about um, snuff, uh, tobacco, you know. I was going to say tobacco, right? Because that's, that's yeah. been a while since and, I even heard um, that term. And uh, dip, as it's also called. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so I'm watching this thing, and uh, I had always smoked a pipe. I was a pipe smoker in those days. I didn't, I, I didn't smoke cigarettes much, but I always liked a pipe. And but you know they're awkward, and you can't smoke them in restaurants and things and so i you know i i'm watching this thing and they're talking about about snuff and they're you know showing people snorting it up their nose and uh you know this is very 18th century to me and i thought god that's that's kind of cool maybe i should try that so i went down uh, in the place i went down in the uh, resort snowbird had a tobacconist and I went down there, I said, you guys have any snuff? And they handed me a little tin of snuff. So I went, oh, this is kind of cool. I went upstairs, and I opened it up, and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, jeez, this, this doesn't look anything like the snuff I saw on the show, and it looks like tree bark or something. It's just, you know, I, I couldn't understand it. And I thought, well, what the hell, I'll give it a try. And I snort some of the snuff. And it nearly took my head off. It was horrible. And my, oh my eyes gosh. were... I, you it, learned a valuable lesson that day, Curtis. <laughs> well, no, you haven't heard the end of it. Oh, okay. So I, I thought, well, yeah, that was awful, but it probably will be better the second time. I, it, it was just madness. So I sat there that evening snorting this stuff and going, oh, this is awful. I don't know. I can't understand how anyone can do this. But then the next morning, I went down to breakfast. We had breakfast served there for us. And I was sitting at the table, and one of these stunt guys sat down. And I had my little tin of snuff sitting next to my plate. And the stunt guy sees it, and he says, oh, you do snuff? And I say, yeah, 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 I do snuff, you know, like Mr. Big Shot. Right. I said, you do, uh, you do snuff? He said, yeah, I used to. He said, but I hated it. It kept getting all over my teeth. And I went, <laughs> your teeth? <laughs> and it was at that point that I realized there are two kinds of snuff. One oh, that you snort up God. your nose and another one that you put between your oh. lip and your teeth. Oh my goodness. And I had been snorting the other kind. So um, I, I stopped after that. But you tried so you so were hard. shooting for Annabellian, and he ended up with a redneck. 
Well, but here, here's the thing. It, I, it, it's ironic that I should have had an experience like this doing, at the moment I was playing a character who would snort anything. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, that's just, dedication. Jello, not that bad by comparison. Yeah, that's true. I, hey, I mean, I assume. 50 minutes in, I have got to move this along or I could talk to you for the next six hours. I've got to hit Revenge of the Nerds and I've got to talk about your book. Let's dig into Revenge of the Nerds real quick because growing up, and a real quick story, going to tie kind of a long tail to this kite. My cousin Pete was the first person I ever knew that had cable. I'd spend the weekends with him. Um, as soon as my uncle went to bed, we'd sneak downstairs and watch late night HBO because it had all the risky business type movies or porkies and stuff like that. Right. The first time I saw Revenge of the Nerds, I remember Booger walking in, getting together with the nerds and me going, this guy's not a nerd. He's got a leather jacket and he's belching and smoking weed. Or This dude is not a nerd. And every time I saw the movie years after, that was a point that just stuck with me. Booger is not a nerd. Why is he in with these nerds? And I am grateful that your book actually answers that question. You have the bio for Booger, and you explain yes. why Booger was with the nerds. And I know this sounds stupid that I would even think about something like this 30 years every time I see it. But it actually does mean something when I read the book and it answered that question. And I, I thank you for finally answering the question why Booger was with the nerds. I mean, he was a nerd corrupter, but I never considered Booger to be a nerd. He was more like a metalhead in my book. Yeah, I mean, but I, you know, we had, in the first season of King of the Nerds, we had John uh, uh, Pop Rocks on our, our first season. Uh, total metalhead. Complete metalhead. Right. And yet, you know, this astonishing you know, mathematical brain on the inside. Um, so you just, I, I, it just shows, if nothing else, uh, people find uh, their level, you know, and it doesn't matter where they come from or what their culture is or, or uh, you know, what their, w which level of thing they're interested in or which type of thing they're interested in. Nerds tend to find each other. And, uh, and, you know, Booger found them probably because they didn't really ask any questions of him. I mean, they didn't, they didn't make him, you know, wash his socks. They, you know, they didn't mind him picking his nose at the table. I don't know. I mean, they, were, they tended to be open and accepting, and that's why he wound up there. No one else wanted him, but they did. And it, I like to think that it would have, you know altered some of his uh, less attractive attributes, but based on what I know, probably they didn't. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, but you had a sense of it, because when you read that bio, you can, you can kind of see, like, I need to have, and you come from, you know, classically trained a theatrical world, where that, excuse me, that kind of thing is kind of standard to write a bio for those characters, Right. And yeah. when you see that bio, you, you go, okay, well, this is why Booger was with this. It wasn't arbitrary, at least not in your mind going into it. You actually had a purpose for him being with them, and I enjoyed well, that. The, the, yeah, the biography really was only a, a tool that I used to find a way to play a character who I didn't like. I didn't like Booger. I didn't find him cool. I found him disgusting.
Right. And so I needed to, he was everything that I wasn't. Uh, you know, uh, so I had to find a way to make him appealing to me so that I could play him in a way that would be appealing to other people, despite, uh, despite how, how dreadful he was in a lot of ways. So that was all that was, was just a, uh, an actor's tool that I had learned. Um, but then, a- you know, people see it differently, though. I mean, people see Booger very differently than I do. Well, I mean, you bring up a good point, too, about Booger. Um, you actually were trying to get them to remove lines yeah. from Booger from yeah, a guy who always... didn't have that much to do, right? Well, there wasn't that much in the script originally anyway. I, I did seem to be trying very hard to eliminate as much as possible from the script because it embarrassed me. I, I thought saying those, you know, I was a fa- I was a dis- self-described feminist. I, I, you know, was not the kind of guy, the way I, he treated women and the way I treated women was very different. And, and I, and it was so obvious and the, you know, the other stuff, the belching and the nose picking and all that kind of stuff was just, it was obnoxious. And so when I could find a place I would say to the director, how about cutting this? I don't think it's really necessary. We're watching pennies on this. You know, we don't have to do that. And they'd go, no, you're an idiot. We're doing that. So, it, you know, I mean, stuff like the belching contest. I tried to get the belching contest removed. But that's a very memorable scene. I, of course I don't it is. Think, I, yeah, was, I was, it, it was, it was, you know, it was a stupid idea. And fortunately, they didn't listen to me. Well, let me ask you about the evolution of Booger then, because for a character that didn't have much to do in the first movie, and then fast forward to move like the fourth movie, Nerds in Love, and that the whole epicenter of that movie is Booger. Was yeah. that because you were filling that void when Anthony Edwards had very yeah, little involvement? Yeah, to a lot in of it. it to, yeah, to a great extent, that's true. I mean, I don't. I I really, you know, I don't think much about any of the other nerd movies, the second or third or fourth. Um, they were different things, and they were trying to accomplish different things. And uh, I, I don't think I've seen... I tried to watch nerd, Nerds in Love when I was writing the book just to refresh my memory, and I don't think I even got through it. Uh, the thing about, about those nerd characters was, not just Booger, but Lamar and Takashi and all the rest of them, you know, they were great characters as long as you didn't give them too much. You had Bobby and Anthony, and those that's where your focus was. was and that's story. where the heart was, too. And that's where the heart was. And the rest of us were, you know, flavor. We were seasoning. And as soon as you put too much of any one seasoning into a recipe, it ruins the recipe. And that's what they did with right the second point. movie, and they did it again with the third and fourth. They couldn't maintain the kind of of uh, effect that that first movie had. Real quick, I got a couple more fan questions here. Our buddy Billy, who is actually a rapper, his rap name is Apollo's son. He wanted me to tell you his dog is Dudley Dawson. He named his dog after that character. <laughs> That's very nice to know. Thank him for me. I absolutely will. And he also had a question. Were the burps real or overdubbed? In oh, oh, they were overdubbed. They were overdubbed. No human could make that noise. Actually, the, the, the sound that Booger 
makes. I pulled this also many times, um, although I don't think it's in the book, weirdly, is uh, they had a, a field recording of a camel orgasm, and that's what Booger's Belch is mixed oh with a, a human belch. That is so funny. I can't it's even. True. You know, I was telling my mom about that this morning. You know, I keep telling her that my brain is a vassal's pit of useless information. And I had watched a video of a con that you had done. And I said, you know, the scene is actually a camel orgasm. And she looked at me. And the the joke between us is my mother collects things. Um, she collects odd things. And one thing that she has is a camel saddle. And my father used to say, Jesus Christ, Darlene, will you get rid of that camel saddle? What the hell are you going to do with a camel saddle? And she's like, John, it's really cool. It's a camel saddle. How many people yeah. have a camel saddle? So we're on the hunt for a camel for her and, um, you know, to put the saddle on. And I was telling her about the belching scene and what I had learned. And she just looked at me and she said, that is the funniest thing I think I've ever heard. <laughs> you should tell her I am the only person I know who owns a camel saddle. Oh, my gracious. So your camel saddle buddies. This yeah. is fantastic. Yeah, so yeah. if we get a pair of them during mating season to make that uh, noise, then you can bring your saddle, she can bring hers, and uh, you okay. guys could this, ride off into the sunset. This is getting into <laughs> a weird area. I don't, think, <laughs> I don't think we can continue that, but uh, it is true. true that I do have a camel saddle. That is fantastic. <laughs> Now, you, um, I, I want to touch on Supernatural real quick because Supernatural sure. is one of my fangirl things. Um, full disclosure, I have not seen Metatron all the way to its completion. Mm. Um, I am, I'm, I'm binge-watching on Netflix, um, but when you came on, it was really cool to see you in, um, you know, I, I, I see the, the comedy and the humor come through, but the seriousness and the diabolical nature of your character um, was, was really cool to see the cunning in that. And, again, it has a cult following, um, just like many other movies. I, I kind of see a little bit of similarity in the X-Files in that you have these standalone episodes where you have the monsters and all that good stuff, but you also have the myth episodes with the many different subplots that are in right. this show, um, which is, it was kind of crazy, but we do have a fan question from Emily, who is also a fan of Supernatural, and she wanted to know what your thoughts on Metatron are and what you did to prepare for that particular role. Well, I didn't uh, really prepare much um, because, you know, as is often the fact with TV, you don't really know where it's going to go. I was hired and then uh, I went uh, to do an episode without knowing uh, they said it was possibly recurring, but no, no indication that it would last three seasons on and off. Um, no, no idea of beginning or middle or end or whether he was a good guy or a bad guy. I only started out with the idea that um, most bad guys don't think they're bad guys. So if he is a bad guy, he doesn't think that, and certainly I wouldn't play him that way. And uh, if he's a good guy, then he would be a good guy, which would be way basically the way I played him. And uh, so it was, you know, a good way of approaching 
a role blind um, because if you're if you're not doing a play or a film, you don't know what where you're going with it. So you you have to m- make a decision about how to play it, and that's what I did. Um, but it was one of the best jobs as far just as an actor. It was one of my best jobs ever. Uh, and let me tell you too. I don't know much about Supernatural. I've never watched the show. But when I put something up there and had listed all the things you were involved in, the Supernatural people is like the craziest, most dedicated fan base I've ever oh, run across. Yeah, it, it's remarkable. They they have a fan base that you know other shows just dream of having. It is the most remarkable. More than the nerds, uh, uh, an incredible uh, fan base uh, with Supernatural. I didn't realize it until I said something, and all these messages started coming in. Yeah, and people yeah. were like sending pictures and talking about. I was like, I saw Supernatural on Netflix. I saw it's on there. It's on the menu list, but. I, it was not something that was on my radar until I put something up about you coming on the show. And I was like, people are insanely dedicated and passionate about this show. I've got to check it yeah. out now, just based on the fan reaction to it, if nothing else. Yeah, well, I had never seen it before I did it. You know, it's not something that was on my radar either, but I uh, was certainly glad to have done so. I mean, it was like the, 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 uh, one of the things that I've got upcoming is this uh, uh, series on sci-fi called Happy. Uh, and oh, I love Happy. Yeah, so I'm going to be doing that uh, this second season. Yay! And, um, and it's another one of those, you know, characters who, you know, just uh, out of the blue, uh, amazing, strange uh, thing happens, and uh, I really loved that. So, yeah, happy is excellent. All right, I, let's dig into the book, and then we've got to get you out of here. Let me tell you a quick little anecdote about this. I ordered your book. I get it in the mail. I'm a bit of a bibliophile like you are. I've read hundreds mm-hmm. of books. I have no room on my shelf for the books anymore. I've got to clear some out and take them up to a, our store, McKay's, our local bookstore, to trade yeah. them in. And so I take it in the bathroom with me. I'm a notoriously slow reader because I really like to absorb things. I'm in there with the highlighter, especially preparing for a show. And I knocked out three chapters in one sitting, for lack of a better term. And I just kind of left the book sitting there on the sink. And I would go back in and pick it back up. And I realized after I finished your book, and it only took me five or six times in the bathroom to do this, you exclusively have the only book that I've ever read completely while sitting on the toilet. And that, wow. that's actually a compliment. That's quite an honor. I don't know yes. what to say. <laughs> yes, it's apropos, but I've actually read your whole book while, while sitting on the toilet. Well, yeah, It was I, that uh, easy and that good and entertaining of a read. I just burned right through it. It was like you were telling me stories around the campfire. Well, that's good. I, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Well, the book I know was um, kind of the catalyst for it was because you ran across some diaries you hadn't seen in years, particularly yeah. with Risky Business. Right. Had it had it been like thirty five years since you saw those diaries? Uh, I don't know if it had been that long, but it had been a long time. It was certainly twenty 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 five years since I'd seen them. They were in a in a box with a lot of other letters and documents and notebooks and things. Uh, there were a lot of them, um, and um, it was only when I really started doing research for it and started going into what I had to decide even whether there was enough to warrant it. 
um, that that I realized the extent of the stuff that I had. And actually, what's funny is, you know, I, we're talking about my training at the Academy of Dramatic Art in at Oakland University in Michigan. Right. And uh, that was also the same campus where I started my theatrical career in uh, at Meadowbrook Theater. And I went back uh, when I was do when I was writing the book, and I was looking for pictures from that period from the Academy or from Meadowbrook. And I thought I would go into their archives and and check them out, which I did. Except their archives both had been moved into the Kresge Library at Oakland University. So I went there, and while going through all of this stuff, uh, the woman who headed up the archive said, have you thought about contributing your own papers at some point? And if so, you should bring them here because we have the Academy, we have Meadowbrook, it would be right to have your papers. And this was about two years ago. And I finally sent them off, um, 16 uh, uh, different uh, boxes of Everything related to my acting career going back to the early 70s. Man, what a treasure trove that was. <clears throat> and it's everything. All of the journals, all of the letters, all of the scripts, all of the pictures, notebooks, everything is now all in the archive of Kresge Library at Oakland University. And I'm going there next month to do a three-day event, uh, working with students, doing some uh, uh, book signings and so on um, to announce the, the opening of of that <coughs> of that archive, uh, particularly their acting school and their '80s cinema school. So it was a it was really exciting and uh, it's going to be fun. I think that is amazing. Let me kind of ask you this because as I'm reading through this book, I have a couple prevailing thoughts in my head. When putting together your memoirs, Revenge of the Nerd, or The Singular Adventures of the Man Who Would Be Booger, when you're going through these old journals, with these old diaries, is it foreign to you? Or are you going, wow, this seems like it was written by somebody else. I'm reading about my oh, life. Sure. So okay, so it wasn't like you just kind of fell back in and you already had remembered all this. This was kind of a foreign experience for you. Kind of. I mean, there were a lot of the things I remembered and some things that I didn't. Um, and some things that I remember vividly that were not there, either because there were sections missing or I had just never written them down. Uh, there were letters there that I had completely forgotten about. Um, all sorts of stuff. And, and uh, uh, you know, some of it came back immediately. Some of it was, oh, my God, I'd forgotten about that. Um, it was just an interesting journey. It took a long time. I uh, bet. And it, it was, it was. I'm, I'm really glad I did it. Kind of the crux at the beginning of the book, when you're talking about your upbringing, particularly the theater years, is you never wanted to do movies. You never wanted to do TV. No. And now I'm looking at your IMDb. You've got 154 credits here in TV and movies. As you look back at this, I think you even used the term like theater evangelical. You are so steeped in the theatric world and so classically trained. As you look back at your career, do you feel like you've traveled too far away from your roots? Or is an actor an actor, whether it's on Broadway, in a TV show, or even in a YouTube video? Is acting just acting? I think that's the answer. I mean, in a way, I miss... It's been 10 years, I think, since I've done a play. 
and I miss that. There's actually a story I tell in the book about going back to the academy, which no longer existed at that point, but to the university, to have a reunion, our 20th anniversary reunion. And a lot of the students came, uh, my classmates came, and also a surprising number of our teachers, one of whom, Alex Gray, uh, was one of our acting teachers. And, and I was, you know, coming off of doing a bunch of, you know, movies of questionable merit and uh, moonlighting and all of this stuff and, you know, not making a name for myself in the theater at all. I remember talking with Alex and sort of babbling about how I was regretting it and how I had gotten too far away oh, from wow. it and, and all of this. And I was sort of sorry I'd gotten into movies because it was... Uh, and then he interrupted me in the middle of it and he said, Curtis, we trained <laughs> you to be an actor. That's what you're doing. Congratulations. And I went, oh, okay. Was that a that game changer on, for you? Yeah, it, it was. It was definitely. I mean, I, I became less hard on myself about it. And I was still doing plays at that point, but, you know, I was not, I was not so, you know, quite so evangelical. Well, I got to tell you, man, and I'm, and I'm serious, the John Goodman stories, uh, stories about you trying to slip into risky business dressed in woman's clothing, there are so many great anecdotes in this book. And I'm going through here, and the thing I think I like the best about it, especially reading about the moonlighting years, and we've had questions about, like, hey, um, what was Tom Cruise like before he kind of went crazy? It kind of gives you a peek into just how fucking insane Hollywood can be at times, right? Well, yeah, no. I mean, it was sort of, it's, I don't think it's that different. It, it was that different then than it ever was. I think, you know, if you were on location uh, or on a tour of a play at, back in the 30s, it was, you know, a little nuts. Um, you know, because you're away from home, you're cut off from the people that you love, and you are, you find your own, you find your own support group in the people that you're with. And, you know, that sort of is what happened with nerds and risky business and less so with Better Off Dead because we shot that in town. But, yeah, it's crazy, but it's not that crazy. I mean, it, in retrospect, um, it's, you know, you get together with a bunch of actors, regardless of their background, and they'll tell you the same stories, just with people with different names. Well, I mean, especially when I'm reading the stuff with Bruce Willis, I think people put this image in their head that's outside of the industry. And it's kind of like when I was little, like a teacher doesn't even use the bathroom. They're beyond approach. And I think when you read these stories, you're like, wow, man, we are all human. End of the day, whether you're a plumber, whether you're an accountant, whether you're making billion-dollar blockbusters, we all kind of have the same little flaws and quirks across the board. And I think that's sure. what I took away from that book was, hey, this could, like the stuff I'm reading about Bruce Willis is the stuff I could be reading about my aunt and uncle. Yeah, well, I think, I, I think that's true. I mean, I think that, you know, the thing about it is, is that people, your generation of people, you know, who weren't around when Moonlighting was on, um, they don't remember, but, you know, basically everything I talked about in the Moonlighting chapter it was stuff that was on the front page of tabloids at the time. Ah, it wasn't, I, right. I wasn't breaking like some sort of secret, you know, by telling these things. I was telling them from my perspective, but this was all information that was out there and in one way or another. 
and uh, you know, it just is. You know, it comes with the territory in a way, and that's you know that if you don't become if you don't become ultra successful, if you don't get into that that sphere of of incredible success. Uh, if you're just a working actor, you go from one job to the next, and you always wind up telling stories about experiences you've had, and that's what we do. I mean, it's part of what our job is. Fair enough. Okay, we've got to get out of here. I've got to touch on King of the Nerds real quick because it was such an impact on my life, especially meeting a lot of the nerd kids who I had invited to call into our shows and got to cultivate friendships with them. I know King of the Nerds meant a lot to you. It had yeah. to be devastating when TBS didn't pick it up for a fourth season. And honestly, I don't understand it. Well, uh, yeah, I, I don't understand it either. But that's often the way in television. There's, there is some kind of uh, motivation behind it. And you, you would drive yourself crazy trying to figure out why. Um, it, was, it was heartbreaking to have it go. But on the, on the bright side, um, I did wind up remaining friends with almost all of the nerds on that show. Um, they're constantly coming through town and staying here at the house. I you know, visit them when I'm in towns that they're living in. We talk, you know, we do emails or you know, all sorts of things. I mean, we've, we've, I've remained amazingly close to them. And to some of the producers and and executives on the show too. So it's uh, although I miss it terribly, it's really wonderful that I made so many new friends out of it. What do you think is the biggest thing you learned from during that process of those three seasons? Well, I mean, it was an area that I'd never worked in before. Unscripted television was not something I'd ever wanted to do, and it was not something I was familiar with, and. It, there was definitely a learning curve to to that, but fortunately, the people that we had running that show, uh, Craig Armstrong and 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 actually the, going all across the whole uh, the whole scan, even going up to the executives at at uh, at um, uh, TBS. Right. Everyone was amazingly supportive and didn't want to do something that was going to hurt people. And sometimes if you see unscripted television, you do wind up feeling like they seem to be going out of their way to make people look. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. And we, that, you know, we had some nerds in our production group and it, it made a big difference in the outlook. As for the kids themselves, the actual contestants, what do you feel like the takeaway was from you interacting with them, and how did it differ from the nerds of old back in the 80s? Oh, there was no comparison. I mean, we were actors in the 80s doing a movie. These were not actors. These were nerds, and they each had their own, you know, specialty. And, you know, it's not to say that it was a love fest. I mean, there were people who didn't like each other, and people who liked each other a lot and people who are still friends and people who have dropped out of sight altogether. You know, there was the whole, the whole melange, but, but basically, uh, you know, I learned from them enormous amounts about whatever their fa their passion was. 
that that made me a better nerd and i like to think that it made me a better person and uh it probably made me a better producer uh although i can't imagine doing that part of the job ever again because that was kind of golden and it would be hard to imagine going back and and doing it again but you never know well, and that's so relevant, what you just said about actors playing nerds. Um, we had Eddie Deason on here, who is kind of like a classical computer nerd and war games and Midnight Madness and all these different films, even before Revenge of the Nerds. This was in the right. 70s. And he was talking about how he auditioned for um, Revenge of the Nerds. And they told him that he was too nerdy, that they were looking for straight-laced actors to play nerds, not nerds to play nerds. And that was crazy to me. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. I, I, don't, I, I do know that he was involved in it. Um, I mean, that he auditioned for it. But I didn't know who he was at the time. And, uh, but Bobby certainly knew. And uh, I, don't know if it was, I don't know if it was that so much. I don't know what it was. I mean, that's a... That's a, a question for uh, for Jeff Canoe probably more than me. All right. Well, let's end with this. I want to ask a couple more fan questions. I know Fern has a couple questions for you, and then we'll let you go. I got to tell you, this has been a complete pleasure, Curtis. I can't wait to get this show out there into oh, the yeah. ether. Um, real quick, let me do a couple quick questions. Danny Alban, who is from the Southern Maryland Guitar Guru Show, their show asks, the line, we've got Bush from Revenge of the Nerd, was that an improv line or was that written in the script? That was in the script. Okay. I would never have improved that line. <laughs> that is a great point. I should have known the answer to that. Um, my buddy Adele Norman, who I co-host our music show with, wants to know how much of Revenge of the Nerds was improv. Not very much. Um, I mean, it was. we worked on the script extensively before we shot. They brought us out a week ahead of time and the actors all worked with the uh, writers and the director on on the script to come up with better stuff. But there was very little improv. Okay, a um, couple real quick miscellaneous questions. Kevin Howard wants to know if you play any musical instruments. I play guitar poorly. Poorly, very good. And Richie Downs wants to know if you still stay in touch with Bob Cat Goldsway. Uh, I've seen him a couple of times, uh, not on a regular basis. Uh, we, we last time I think we did uh, Harmontown together, uh, Dan Harmon's podcast. But I haven't seen a lot of him lately. We we keep in touch because of Savage and Joel Murray. The three of them are tight and. You know, every once in a while we get in touch about doing something again and we talk about it for a while and then nothing happens. And so then we wait and start over again somewhere else. Well, I you do him, see though. rumors every once in a while, just to kind of pivot back over to nerds, that there will be a Revenge of the Nerds reboot with different cast of characters. Is that yeah, something I, that's ever going to happen or is that just Internet gossip? It's Internet gossip. It won't happen. All right, um, last question, and I'm going to pass it over to Fern to finish this up. Um, Rachel McDonald, another Supernatural fan. What was it like working with Rob slash God in those iconic scenes and the most memorable part of it? Uh, she's referring to the, not the last episode, but the penultimate ap episode that Metatron had, which was basically a two-character uh, two uh, part. Okay. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, and... Uh, it was one of the best experiences ever. I loved 
It gave me a chance to act in a way that I haven't acted in many, many years. It felt like doing a play. It was the best, just the best experience. Are you surprised after years of kind of just doing this project and this project and this project and everything is baseline, and then you get involved with something like Supernatural and you just fall in love with acting again? Yeah, it's nice because if you didn't do that once in a while, you really would wonder why you were still putting up with the rest of the shit. I am very grateful for that. And doing the shows that I did last year, Happy and Champaign, Illinois, both of those shows gave me, uh, you know, uh, a chance to, to work again, you know, at the, instead of doing the same thing over and over again. And uh, it was really delicious. So, man, uh, yeah. I, can't wait to see you and happy the guy who plays the lead role Chris he is Maloney, yeah. yeah he is so amazing in that show i'm really looking forward to that fern yeah. you want to take us home here i know you have some rapid fire questions here for curtis yes 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 looking at your body of work i have just a few rapid fire questions only five they'll be very simple and i promise they will not involve a camel saddle okay. um <laughs> So I, I do want to know, in your opinion, what has the bigger street value, the K-12 or Angel Essence? K-12. Okay. I know there's also a Sherlockian, which unfortunately we have not been able to get into today. Like Nick said, we could probably talk to you for six hours and be totally cool. But yeah. as a Sherlock Holmes character, um, and I'm a big fan of both Elementary and the BBC Sherlock, mm -hmm. who do you think represents Sherlock better, Johnny Lee Miller or Benedict Cumberbatch? Oh, I think uh, I think they're both great. I mean, I I I like uh, Benedict Benedict Cumberbatch. I think probably I think a little that would probably get the nose, but they're both terrific. Uh, very cool. Yeah, I, I love them both. They're, I think they both do a good job too. I'm actually, um, to be honest, I'm more of a uh, of going back to the original stories. I'm a I'm a uh, I tend to be a book uh, Sherlock Holmes fan rather than any adaptations. Yeah, and I know so you have not, a big I'm history a with that, which is very cool. That is very cool. That's an intellectual level that's, that's awesome. Um, your most relatable voiceover, another thing we haven't gotten to touch on yet, but I know you've done a lot of voiceover work. Do you personally relate more to Dan of Dan versus, or do you personally relate more to Snot from American Dad? Dan. Wait, can I interject I real the, quick? Snot was yeah, written absolutely. for you, right? It kind of is homage to the Booger character. Is that correct? That that was how, that was how it came up. Yeah, Seth Seth created it as sort of a wink to uh, Booger. The character has nothing to do with Booger. I mean, he's just a nice Jewish kid, but it's but he just gave it that name. Right, but it was kind of like a tribute to him. To say, hey, yeah. Booger well, is a classic to the part name, of the certainly, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, and lastly, like in doing my homework and looking at cons and articles and reading interviews and all this cool stuff, one of the weirdest questions I ever heard from anyone was somebody who asked you about the shampoo that you used for, you used for your hair. So I have to ask you, during filming, who had the better hair? Would it be Tom Cruise? John Cusack, or do you just like beat them both out hands down? 
Boy. Uh, <laughs> who had better hair? Tom Cruise. Oh, God. What is Tom with Cruise. women and their hair? You know, me and Dee met Weird Al Yankovic two years ago, and Dee asked her, asked Weird Al what products. We could have asked him anything, and she asked Weird Al what, like, he, she loves his hair and what because products. His hair's he like uses. mine. I have super curly hair like that. And I was like, dude, his hair always looks perfect. So I thought, if, if I can learn from the master, like, how to, what to The put Jedi on my of hair. hair? Exactly. Well, and he was just did like, he have an water? Answer? No, he just said water, and I felt crushed. <laughs> We're yeah, being hurried through this line. We only get one question, and Dee just jumps in and asks Weird Al what product he used. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most men don't have an answer for that. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially if you're on the road a lot. You don't take shampoo with you. You just use whatever they have in the hotel. I think that's a perfect place to end. Curtis, you have made this 100th episode of Kettle of Fish truly special. Please tell everybody where they can find you on the interwebs and how we can get a hold of Revenge of the Nerd, your memoirs, or the singular adventures of the man who would be Booger. Uh, Well, you can get hold of of the book. Uh, It's published by St. Martin's Press. You can go to, I think, www.curtisarmstrongbook.com, and you can order it through there. But you can get it from from Amazon or, you know, any of those. Uh, Twitter is really the only one that I do anymore. Um, uh, and that's uh, Curtis is Booger. Yeah. And as, as kind of a sidebar, too, you know, this book was thoroughly entertaining. It's the best biography I've probably read since, God, Johnny Cash's biography. Is there any writing in your future, or was this a one-off? Well, no, I've already written a second book, um, which is, which is uh, a book of essays uh, that I co-wrote with uh, a guy named Elliot Milstein. He and I uh, wrote a series of essays on an uh, English comic writer named P.G. Woodhouse. And uh, we pu- it's called A Plum Assignment. Uh, and that is also available at Amazon and all of those places. But it's specifically about a writer. It has... Uh, some of it is a little bit uh, autobiographical, but uh, mainly not. Right on. So, do you think this is an avenue you're going to pursue further, or are you kind of? I don't know. I, I don't know. I think maybe, you should. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I, I'm I'm still a little bit unsure about whether that would happen. All righty. Okay, guys, we are out of here. Curtis, once again, thank you. I couldn't think of anybody better to get on the hundredth episode. I'm so glad we finally were able to make this happen. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was great talking to you. Lots of good questions. All righty, guys. We'll be back in two weeks with Christopher Hoffman. And you guys have a great, I'm sure we'll be back in February, end of January. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Okay, nerds. Let's go. Good
Thank you.